Mindfulness. How many people here have practiced mindfulness? Everybody, right? So what's mindfulness? Paying attention. Okay, that's, one. Well, that's, a, that's a good definition. What else is mindfulness? What was that? Be, being in the present now. Yes. Yes, present awareness. Yes. Awareness. Okay, so we've got attention, awareness, presence. Discernment. So there's a component of clarity in it, of wisdom in it, of discerning. Yes. Conscious. Consciousness. Yes, to be conscious. Conscious of anything in particular? Uh, um, well, it's kind of Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, there, it's not easy to do, but it's worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, to li- actually live quite consciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, those are actually some nice, no, nice discussion definitions or approaches to mindfulness. Mindfulness, the term is sati, and sati is often described as the observing power of the mind, that capacity we have to be aware. But there's also a component of sati which is described as being remembering. And sometimes we describe that as remembering to pay attention or remembering the present moment or reconnecting with what is, um, becoming very um, awake to what is. Um, A lot of the teachings of mindfulness come through a particular sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana Sutta is number 18 in the Middle Length Discourses, and um, the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, which is sort of an expanded version of the same, is number 10 in the the Long Discourses of the Buddha. And there's a um, fairly recent, not too old, book out um, called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And if you want to study the text itself, this is probably the current best text on the subject. So it's actually, it's a little detailed. When I was at the forest refuge um, doing that, that long retreat, um, Joseph Goldstein gave five, I, I listened to five months of teachings on the, um, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, and he only got through about the first half. And then um, I spent about a year in England at the Sharpham College for Buddhist studies, and there was a year-long course on the Satipatthana Sutta. So it's, it's a kind of a text that can be broken up into lots of pieces and explored quite deeply. What we're going to do in this month is just a very brief overview of the basic four foundations of mindfulness which structure that text. There is, though, a... Um, There is, though, a verse in the, um, from the Satipatthana Sutta. I was just thinking, did I say it was number 18 or did I say it was number 10 in the Middle Age Discourses? I may have gotten them reversed. Well, look, be careful. I may have gotten them reversed. <laughs> My mind just went, no, that wasn't right. <laughs> and one is 18 and one is 10. Um, so... I'd like to quote from the sutta. Bhikkhus, a practitioner, 
This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Quite an advertisement, isn't it? This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So I already heard a little bit about what mindfulness is. I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you can be mindful of. body. Okay. What else? What aspect of the body? What? Um, sensation. Sensation. You can be mindful of sensation. What else can you be mindful of? Feelings. feelings. Okay, feelings. What kind of feelings? Um, I guess pleasant, unpleasant. Okay, pleasant. Pleasant and unpleasant feelings. And what kind of emotions? Sadness, anger, happiness. happiness, joy, delight. Yeah, yeah. What else can you be mindful of? Thoughts. Thoughts? What kind? Of, okay. <laughs> what, what kind of thoughts? Well, okay. What kind of thoughts? Thoughts about? Thoughts about everything. Everything. Okay. Okay. Thoughts about time. Ah, okay, so that's a nice elaboration of breaking down thoughts to we can think about the past for memories and we can be mindful of a memory. We can think about thoughts about the future and we can be mindful of planning or of anticipating or of expecting. We can be mindful of thoughts in the present moment, which are more like a recognition of what something is or even a, a brief um, uh, kind of uh, uh, recognition, I guess, is good enough. Sometimes there can be a tiny bit of comparing or analysis that's occurring in the present moment of things that are actually relatively you know, in the here and now, not big future or big past. Hmm. What else can you be mindful of? Yes, environment, the planet, other people, other beings, other animals. That's actually an interesting one because in the we don't practice it very much and you'll almost never hear the instruction on any retreat or sitting group. But we're supposed to be mindful both internally and externally of things. And sometimes that external aspect is instead of just being mindful of my body, it's being mindful of another body. Instead of just being mindful of, of, of um, a, a feeling of sadness within me, it's being aware, mindful, conscious, attentive to, sensitive to the sadness in another being. And that's, an, that's a component of mindfulness which um, is not often thought of. And it's definitely included in the traditional teachings. 
I hope by this you've gotten a sense of the, scent, the possibility of mindfulness being quite expansive. That it's not just one particular thing. It is not just feeling the, 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 the breath. It's much bigger than feeling the breath. So it's not limited to any particular experience like breathing, and it's not limited to any particular sensations in the body. Like sometimes we think that we can be mindful of certain things, but actually we can be mindful of what's pleasant, and we can be mindful of what's unpleasant, and we can be mindful of those really subtle states that are neutral. We can be mindful of strong emotions um, like anger and sadness, but we can also be mindful of very subtle emotions like tranquility and calmness and interest. And there is a reflective component which I'll focus on a little bit more. So it's not just the sensations, that kind of direct observation of, but the observation can occur in a reflective manner in our relationship to things. So in terms of the four foundations, again from the sutta, What are the four? Here bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings. Ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind. Ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. There's a pairing of of abiding, mindful, and fully aware, and having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Mindful experience, mindful presence, mindful observation of something or mindful contemplation of something is a knowing of things without this push and pull of covetousness and grief or of desire and aversion or of wanting things to be other than they are. Mindfulness is a deeply balanced factor. In this um, series, I'm going to focus a little less on the factor of mindfulness and a little bit more on the four foundations or establishments of awareness. They're the fields or the arenas within which we practice mindfulness. And the first is a form or body. The second is a feeling, the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The third is of mental states, thoughts, moods, emotions, views, and how our 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 um, mental states affect our thoughts, that interaction of mood and thought. And the last section, mindfulness of mental objects or dhammas, wasn't actually brought up in anything that, w- that was mentioned yet tonight. It's a much subtler level of, of, of um, foundation for practice, and we'll be discussing that in the last week of the month. And it's a category that describes contextualized experience, the function of things. And in a way, it's kind of a catch-all category for everything else and the interaction of everything. It's it's sort of a very dynamic um, foundation for mindfulness. Tonight, I want to focus primarily on mindfulness of body, kaya. 
The first instruction is to be mindful of the body in the body. Sometimes this is phrased the body as a body or in regards to the body he dwells mindful of the body. To see the body as a body, to be aware of our posture, our posture whether we're sitting, whether we're reclining, whether we're standing, whether we're walking, whether we're in activity, whether we're working, whether we're reaching for something, whether we're holding something, whether we're feeling weight, whether we're bending, whether we're eating. The sutta goes on to describe defecating, urinating. I mean, it's very specific about being mindful of our activities. So mindful of posture, mindful of activities. These are some of the primary ways that we're encouraged to be mindful. And even as you're listening to this talk, you might let some portion of your awareness remain within your posture. So that even though you're listening fully attentive, you're also aware of your existence in space. You might just feel your shape and how it contacts the air. You might just feel how you're sitting, how you're aligned, what's your relationship with gravity, how you contact the chair. Another big area of mindfulness was mentioned, which is the mindfulness of sensation. And we practice a lot with that because that's an easy way to ground the mind. That's feeling hardness, feeling heat, feeling coldness, feeling vibration, tension, throbbing, pulsing, tingling, pressure, all those various sensory experiences. We experience the body every day of our lives, whether we're mindful of it or not. We experience it through minor itches, through sweating, through aches, through tensions, through feeling pasty mouth in the morning before we brush our teeth, or sticky and hot after we've exercised. We might feel hunger before we've eaten a meal, and we might feel that fullness after eating a meal. We might feel achy and heavy when we're sick or when we're tired. These are ways of experience the body as a body. We can also feel the mental states and emotions in the body. We might be nervous and we feel that nervousness in our stomach. We might be angry and we feel it as heat and pressure in the head. We might be sad and feel it as a contraction in the chest. We might be be a little um, uncertain and feel a, a tightness or a constriction in the throat. It's another way of experiencing the body, but experiencing it through the dynamic expression of moods and emotions. We can also experience the body through its cycles. The cycles through of aging, the cycles of tiredness through a day, how differently the body feels at 8 o'clock in the morning than at 10 o'clock at night. We might feel changes in the body through of hormonal cycles during a month, especially for women. We might feel um, changes in digestion, the cycles between meals. We might feel it in cycles of illness, cycles of health. There are many, many ways of approaching mindfulness of the body as a body. 
How many people here have sat a retreat, a meditation retreat? Okay, about half of you, maybe a little more than half. Well, you've probably all then had instruction on being mindful of the body in many of the ways I've already spoken of. Mindfulness through the posture, mindfulness with breathing, mindfulness of eating, mindfulness of work. So tonight I want to focus on an aspect of mindfulness of the body as body that's not so often talked about. Those ways that I've spoke about already of bringing mindfulness to sensation and to, to posture are um, bringing a direct mindfulness to a present moment experience that arises. It, it doesn't involve concept. Just a tingle as a tingle. Just, I mean, the tiniest flutter of a concept to know that it's a tingle. But really, it's not about the concept of a tingle. It's really about the mindfulness of that changing experience of tingle. The part I want to speak about tonight is a reflection on the 32 parts of the body. And it's not often talked about because most people don't like it. It's not as... pleasant in a way. Maybe it's not quite as direct either. And it does involve a contemplative aspect. It's part of a reflection practice that makes, creates very strong concentration as well as being included as a practice of mindfulness. It's classified both as a practice of mindfulness and as a practice of concentration, which I find kind of interesting and quite honestly haven't entirely figured out. But um, it is classified in both of these ways. You can use the practice of the 32 parts of the body to attain the first jhana in concentration and use it very much as that steadiness and it functions that way, functions as a concentration practice. And yet it occupies an enormous part of the Satipatthana Sutta on mindfulness. It's sometimes called the dispeller of delusion. And um, I, um, I've actually found it to be quite fun to do. The 32 parts. Has anybody practiced with the 32 parts here? Has anybody practiced with the first five of the 32? That's more common. No? Okay, so it'll be totally new. Or else you're shy and not, not admitting it. Okay, uh, so I'll just repeat, I'll just read the 32 parts and just for a moment let the attention connect with each one. Just sort of let it register what that part is. Head hairs. I mean, how often do you think of your head hairs? Not your do, <laughs> but your head hairs, not your style, just the head hairs. Head hairs. Body hairs. Nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidney, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, entrails, gore, 
That's the contents of the stomach. Dung, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. 32 parts of the body, traditional contemplation for many thousands of years here. Each of these are broken up into a set of five or six, and then that pentad or sestat is repeated in forward order and then in reverse order. And then each of these sequences, both forward order and reverse order, is broken down even further so that it's repeated verbally as a chant, then it's repeated mentally as a thought, and then it's repeated as to its color, as to its shape, as to its direction or location, whether it's in the upper part of the body or the lower part of the body, the inside of the body, the outside of the body, as to its location, specific location within the body, and as to it, what is called the delimitation, which means what system it's part of, so that the head hair is different than the, it's the distinguishing and discerning the differences between them, so that the head hair is different than the kidney, the lungs are different than the nails. So you start to, 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 to separate them out a bit. So you go on repeating these, um, repeating and connecting the attention with the recollection of. You know, you don't um, head hair and you don't bring your hand up to feel it. It's a recollection. It's moving the mind to the, the sense of, the thought of, the impression of, or the impact of that thing. So it requires a lot of concentration because you're... Um, you're, you're constructing a, um, you're directing the attention to a concept of something, and yet that that you're directing it to is very much a part of your body. This practice has been used for um, many thousands of years, particularly in, a mon in monastic situations, so that the monks could overcome lust. <coughs> And part of that is after you do that first system, then you go through the whole list again, each pentad, with, that's, and with each of those sequences verbally, mentally, da, 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 all the way through, forward order, backward order, but focusing on the, what they call the repulsive aspect of it. So it becomes a practice of the classic term is great. It's, it's called revulsion. The interesting thing to me is that when I did it, I didn't experience revulsion. Well, I experienced revulsion at one point. It's described in the Visuddhimagga, and it takes 54, 54 pages are on this particular practice. Forward order, backwards order, the space, the description, the color. The, by the time I finished the 54 pages, I was totally revolted. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest, when I undertook the practice, there was no revulsion at all because the concentration that it takes to do a practice like this, to maintain the reflection, brings with it delight and joy. It was a blast. And I strongly recommend trying it out because it's really quite fun. And it brings another, another way of viewing, another way of experiencing this thing we walk around in day all the time. And so often we just have a, a view of what it is. And doing a practice like this 
puts a totally different light on the subject. This um, aspect, though, of revulsion or of overcoming lust isn't something that people um, generally like in lay life. Understandably, because that's not our commitment in lay life. Um, however, what I found is, is the term is called asuba practices, which refer to this foul aspect of things. But foul, I don't think, is the correct um, translation. It's really not beautiful. Suba refers to beautiful ah before it means not. It's the not beautiful element of things. But because that sounds funny in English to say to focus on the not beautiful, people say focus on the foul, and it just sort of got translated that way for a hundred years now since it's been come, since the teachings have been coming into English. But it's really it really in practice is the not beautiful element. And what happens is as we deconstruct the body into its components parts, because the interest is so strong, there's neither the lusting after nor the repelled by. Because concentration isn't involved in that kind of pushing and pulling on experience. It's, the body is seen just for what it is, its components parts. It's simple. It's direct. It's very easy. There's no allurement. There's no illusion of beauty, no viewpoint that stands in admiration of the body, and no position that seeks to possess the body. It's just head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, sinews, like that. That's all it is. And it, it, it simplifies things. It like sifts out things. And it's one more way of taking a, an angle onto the experience of, of the emptiness of self. Because so often we hold self, we hold our bodies to be very much mine, like this thing that we inhabit. And it's one of the illustrations that's traditionally given to understand the emptiness of self is to say, well, where is the self in, um, in a chariot? Is it the axle? Is the chariot the axle? If you take the wheel off, is the chariot the wheel? If you take the seat off, is the chariot the seat? If you take the, the, the horse off, is the chariot the horse? Which part is, the, is it? And when you break anything down like that, it becomes another sort of way to contemplate the construction of self through body or the identification with our bodies. I found the most powerful part of this practice to be that experience of the absence of desire for and the absence of, of, of aversion to that comes through the practice when things are just seen as they are. Because so often fantasy of lust is sustained through an, a complete illusion. I mean, you know, sometimes people are really attracted to hair and there's all those commercials te on, on television where the women have this some special conditioner and they flip their hair back. And, or Charlie's Angels, didn't they always like flip their hair back and it was like this exciting thing? Well, you know, when it's laying on the bathroom floor, it is not nearly as beautiful. And yet it's the same. So what makes hair beautiful? It's not the hair. It's something quality of allurement that doesn't see hair as hair.
Same with teeth. Some people find teeth really attractive. But, you know, have you ever had one break off or fall out? And you look at it? I don't see anything attractive about a tooth with its little roots and its cracks and things. They look really like funny little things. Is anyone a dentist here? <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we just often have an impression of some attractive form that we want or that we think. And that is so conditioned by our culture. We are taught. Some cultures are taught to like certain shapes. Other cultures are taught to like other shapes. Some cultures like some colors, some other colors, some light, some dark, some this, some that. It's just a form of conditioning, and it's all very conceptual. And it, it relies upon not seeing the body as the body. It relies upon non-mindfulness. So when I was doing this practice, I was very interested that um, it was really that both re- that I was expecting to have feelings of disgust. I really was because I had thought, you know, oh, the asuba practices, this is going to get so revolting. It's gonna get so-. And that simply didn't happen. So I just wanted to mention that because it is, was a very strong feature of that practice for me. And instead, I found the inspiration from a... Um, Uh, just a statement of simple wisdom that says toads aren't ugly they're just toads and in many ways that's the wisdom that came through this practice for me toads aren't ugly they're just toads whether it's ugly or beautiful things are as they are hair you know head hair body hair nails teeth skin now we all have to do things to maintain our bodies you know, we have to bathe, we have to brush our teeth, we have to do personal hygiene things. And I happen to be raised to think that some of those activities should take place in the bathroom or in the private privacy of somebody's bedroom, that not all of them are for public consumption and view. But maybe I... Maybe my, maybe my upbringing was a little strict, I don't know. But living in community for many years and attending community retreats for many years has really required a sort of an expansion of that. And I'll just give you a couple of examples that occurred while I was in retreat doing this practice as part of my practice because they were very striking to me. And one, is, um, one was that, you know, I, always, I was always just raised that when you cut your fingernails, you do that in the bathroom. But I was on this retreat doing this asuba practice, and there was a fellow who about every three weeks would go to the dining room (laughs) and clip his fingernails over the trash can that was near where we would bus our dishes. And I couldn't understand why he would do this, and at first, you know, my mind would, would judge it. And then as, they, as, the, as this practice was, I was enter, entering into this practice, doing this practice, I was just started to say, oh, nails. And all of the aversion and the judgment just vanished because I could just see nails as nails. Doesn't mean I started to clip my fingernails there either, but, um, but just it took away the aversion. It's another way of working and to see how the mind, what sustains aversion and what sustains desire for. It's another angle into those, another investigation into those things. How the mind makes these extra constructions around things rather than just seeing something as it is. 
we judge it as repellent. I also had a very similar experience with somebody on a retreat because I always thought after you, go to the, after you eat your meal, then you go to the bathroom and floss your teeth. But she did it right in the dining room. So I again had the same judgments. And then teeth, spittle. Just by recognizing and labeling and bringing the attention to that experience, again, I could see that I was only able to sustain those judgments because I wasn't actually mindful of teeth and spittle. I was just, I was involved in a whole comparing, judging process that was far removed from the simplicity of the experience. And then on this long, this long retreat I did at the forest refuge, one of my jobs, uh, over the course of time, I had a number of jobs, but one of my jobs was, um, was washing rags. And so every place in the building would have different closets, cleaning closets, and people who were doing their work period in that part of the building would put their rag, dirty rags in baskets. And then I would go around to all of the cleaning closets, collect all the dirty rags, wash them, fold them, and put them back. Sounds like a simple job. It was. It was an easy job. I loved it. Now, some people, though, would do their cleaning and then they would shake their rag over, you know, out or rinse it out or something before putting it in the bin to sort of like sit there for a few days before enough collected to do a laundry. And other times people would do do their jobs and there'd just be like this mass of hair and dirt and filth and lots of body hairs and things that were just like all over this. And so I'd have to like sort out each one and then shake it. Because you can't just throw them all in the laundry because it doesn't all go down the, the tube. You know, so, so I made sure to keep a constant recitation <laughs> some days going with this, this uh, super practice to see because otherwise the mind could easily come in. And I just mention these because, you know, it's just body hair. And we all are called upon in our life at different times to do things that are unpleasant and that are icky. And if we can let the oh gross vanish and just be with the experience, it's amazing how much of the discomfort is gone. Sometimes we'll have to do tasks that are smelly, that are stinky, that are icky. And that's just part of being alive in this world, having plumbing, having to, you know, do stuff. So rather than, at times when you're having to do an icky task, rather than grit your teeth, hold your nose, and try to get through it as fast as possible, not paying attention to it because it's so icky, which is what most, of, most people do when they have to do an icky task, I would suggest that you really take that opportunity as a contemplation of the body to see what there is to learn about the body in that. I think of the Asuba reflections as developing a professional relationship with our body rather than a personalized one. The other times when this practice is, um, is often used sort of as an antidote is if your mind is obsessed by lust. It happens, right? 
It happens a lot, awful lot on retreat when people leave their home and then they're suddenly in a, in, a, in a totally different social situation. And the mind very often starts to construct fantasies of who we are in relationship to other people. And it may fixate on some particular person in the room who, for some reason, we know is fantastic and how happy we will be when we get together or when we see them afterwards or this or that. Um, and so this phenomenon of what they call the Vipassana romance on retreat or the VR has um, <laughs> kind of a long tradition. Now, very often nothing happens with it except we see how the mind functions. I, I know of a few, a few cases though when it's ended up in, in long-term relationships, but that's beside the point. Um, the, 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 one of the strategies that uh, monastics use since they've made a vow of celibacy is to, you know, the, it doesn't, just because you've made a, a vow of celibacy doesn't mean that thoughts don't still arise regarding sexuality. And so there's a, a, a tra this is the traditional practice that somebody who's undertaken a period of celibacy would practice. So say a thought of lust arises, then you just repeat head hairs body hairs, nails, teeth, skin. And it's amazing to me how quickly you just go to the fact of things and everything that required the construction of the fantasy vanishes. And when I've done it, it's been quite interesting because somebody who, you know, I would always be aware of when that person was in the room. And then if I undertook this practice in relationship to that person on retreat, it would immediately shift to, oh, Head hairs, body hairs, nail, teeth, skin is getting their meal now. Oh, <laughs> head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin left their shoes there. Head hairs, and it almost became like a name and the charge went completely out. And it's, it's, it's um, sometimes helpful to know how to take the charge out so that we can then have a lot of space to choose whether we want to act on lustful feelings and entertain them or whether we don't. And if we don't know how to have some ways of taking the charge out, then we can just be swept along and have um, a much greater struggle to make wise choices in our life. The other, um, the other methods that are given in the sutta to deal with contemplation of the body in the body is to sit in a cemetery, to watch death, to observe death to um, observe the um, um, uh, different parts of the body. Um, surgery is a great, this, well, they would do autopsies in Thailand and the monks and people staying in the monasteries, I had the opportunity to watch them. Um, so that's one intense way of contemplating the body. Um, but we have a very interesting way. Do you know anybody who's had laparoscopic surgery? If you do ask to see their pictures, because now when you get surgery done, you go home with a little album. Some people go home with a little videotape. And then you can use that for your meditation. It's fantastic for your meditation. And because you actually see the inside of your body. What would it be to see the body as the body? Without desire, without aversion, without judgment. Just intimately as the body. With a mindful attention to the body, 
that's non-reactive to the things that we like and the things that we don't like, the pleasant aspects, the unpleasant aspects. We don't make up stories about the body. We don't need to add a lot of personal significance and we're not lost in our preferences. It's just the body. I'm going to suggest a homework assignment for this week. Some of you will be coming back to the whole series and I'd like to give you little reflections or homework assignments. And this one is a a very simple one. I'd like you to stand in front of a mirror. Say two minutes, three minutes a day for the next week. You can probably all manage two or three minutes a day. Depending on your living situations, if it's appropriate, fully naked, full-length mirror. If it's not appropriate, then just stand in front of a mirror that's good enough <laughs> and, you know, see your face. But see, but tune into your body, your experience of your body, and see if you can observe your body without judgment. Most people have never observed their body without judgment. We look in the mirror and we say, oh, too light, too dark, too fat, too flabby, too thin, too prickly, too, too this, too that constantly comparing and judging and see if every time a judgment comes you can just come back to body just a direct observation of that experience just for two or three minutes a day it'll be an experience of that movement of judging and comparing to just direct observation judging and comparing to direct observation that would be the suggested homework If you do want to play with the 32 parts, the way that you do it is you just work with the first five for a long time. So those of you who are kind of like intrigued by this, just work with head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. And you'd work those forward order, back order, and all different ways before you would add any of the other ones. So if you wanted to just play with that a little bit. You you get so many benefits just by doing the first five. You don't really need to go on to the other. It just strengthens concentration and deepens the reflection by continuing it. Well, Doug, please. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you bring the mind to hair. So you do that almost through a thought. It's not a sensation. It's a thought. That's why it's often not taught in um, retreats because so much emphasis is to get people out of the conceptual thought and into the direct feeling, the changing sensations of the body. But I just thought it, this is quite a fun thing is to just shift to head hairs. I mean, just by saying head hairs, If you just do it out loud or mentally, head hairs, it's almost like the mind goes right to a sense of head hairs, body hairs. It's almost like there's an instant recollection of body hairs. And it just happens with the the thought of it. So this is a reflective practice, not a tingling of the head hairs. It's a reflective practice. And because it's a reflective practice, the concentration gets very strong because we're holding a image. That may change from the head hairs to the body hairs to the, as you go through the sequence. And then when you go through, like, based on shape, you'll be head hairs, but you'll be focusing on the shape of it. You know, some, 
depending on which kind of head hair you have. You know, if you have curly, if you have thick, if you have thin, if you have wispy. But you'll focus on the shape and then go through the, the shape of the nails, the shape of the... through. And when you're focusing on the color, the attention will go directly to the color. And you sustain that focus of it. And then you have to do them backwards. So you do the five forward and five back, five forward and five back. If you want to play with it, I just do the forward back chanting and mental um, chanting it meant out loud, verbally, mentally, and then as to color and as to shape. And that should keep you really busy for a while and then check with me. Ask for an interview or, or come talk with me before the next, before the meeting because that, you, you know, you wouldn't go on very far with that until you checked with the teacher and seen what was coming through that practice. Kind of refined it a little bit. It's just fun. You know, there's a lot in these texts and so, many, so much of the instruction that we get is, is, is what, you know, is very useful, which is mindfulness of breathing. In many ways, that's the core of the practice. But I think it's kind of fun to fill it out a little bit now and then with some other practices and explore a little bit.